Yes, all aboard. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. And the train is building up ahead of steam. So grab your ticket. It's free. Get on board. This train will be picking up passengers along the way. Taking you on a sports journey. So, enjoy the ride. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your conductor, Anthony Smith. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome to another edition of the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast on a Tuesday evening, the day after Martin Luther King Day. But guess what? It doesn't mean that the history lesson is going to stop. Holding true to my word, I told you I was going to bring a different perspective on sports. Yes, there will be the NFL because we are in playoff season, so we are definitely going to be keeping up with that. But in keeping true to my word that I haven't been too true to, which that is changing now. So I said I was going to give you some history on African-American sports, whether it be teams or whether it be individuals. And as I was going through a rundown of a list of important names yesterday, uh, one name I seen kind of stood out to me. And today's highlight or spotlight is going to be on Larry Doby or Larry Dobby, however however you want to pronounce it. The last name is spelled D-O-B-Y. And I think at some point while I'm doing these names and doing these highlighting these different players, at some point I'm going to get my good friend Bob Lutz from The Drive, KFH. 875 FM, 1240 AM to come on and join me for a segment because here in Wichita, he is a participant with what's called League 42. So I will definitely be reaching out to him within the near future to get his thoughts on some of these players' names, his, his baseball history, his knowledge of baseball history. But today's spotlight is on Larry Doby, born Lawrence Eugene Doby, born December 13, 1923, passed away June 18, 2003, was an American professional baseball player in the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball, who was the second black player to break baseball's color barrier and the first black player in the American League a native of Camden, South Carolina, and three-sport All-State athlete while in high school in Patterson, New Jersey. Doby accepted a basketball scholarship from Long Island University. 
At 17 years of age, he began his professional baseball career with the Newark Eagles as the team's second baseman. Doby joined the United States Navy during World War II. His military service complete, Doby returned to baseball in 1946 and, along with teammate Monty Irvin, helped the Eagles win the Negro League World Series. In July 1947, three months after Jackie Robinson made history with the Brooklyn Dodgers, Doby broke the Major League Baseball color barrier in the American League when he signed a contract to play with Bill Veek's Cleveland Indians. Doby was the first player to go directly to the majors from the Negro Leagues. A seven-time All-Star center fielder, Doby was the teammate. Doby and teammate Satchel Page were the first African-American players to win a World Series championship when the Indians took the crown in 1948. He helped the Indians win a franchise record 111 games and the AL pennant in 1954. Finished second in the American League Most Valuable Player Award voting and was the American League's RBI leader and home run champion. He went on to play for the Chicago White Sox, Detroit Tigers, and Chinichi Dragons before his retirement as a player in 1962. Doby later served as the second black manager in the majors with the Chicago White Sox. And in 1995 was appointed to a position in the American League's executive office. He also served as a director with the New Jersey Nets of the National Basketball Association. He was selected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1998 by the Hall's Veterans Committee and died in 2003 at the age of 79. Early life. Doby was born in Camden, South Carolina to David Doby and Etta Brooks. Doby's father served in World War I. He worked as a horse groomer and played semi-pro baseball, but drowned in an accident at age 37 in New York State. Doby's mother, who had divorced David before his death, moved to Patterson, New Jersey. Doby remained in Camden. He lived with his grandmother before moving to live with his father's sister and brother-in-law from 1934 to 1938. He attended Jackson School, which was segregated under South Carolina state law. His first opportunity to play organized baseball came as a student at Boylan Haven Mather Academy, a private school affiliated with the Methodist Church. Richard DeBose, who had managed Doby's father and was known locally in African-American circles for his baseball expertise, gave Doby some of his first baseball lessons. Reflecting on his years growing up in South Carolina, including how he and playmates used worn-down broom handles for bats, Doby said, growing up in Camden, we didn't have baseball bats. We used a tree here, a tin can there for bases. After completing eighth grade, Doby moved north to Patterson at the age of 14 to be reunited with his mother. She visited him weekly while he lived with one of their, her friends. At Patterson East High High School, Doby was a multi-sport athlete as well as 
playing baseball and basketball. He was a wide receiver in football and lettered in track. After winning a state football championship, the Eastside team was invited to play in Florida, but the promoters would not allow Dobie, the only black player on the team, to participate. Consequently, the team voted to forego the trip as a gesture of support for Dobie. During summer vacation, Dobie played baseball with a black semi-pro team, the Smart Sets, where he played with future Hall of Fame shortstop Monty Irvin. He also had a brief stint with the Harlem Renaissance, a professional basketball team, as an unpaid substitute player. Upon completing high school, he accepted an athletic scholarship to play basketball at Long Island University, Brooklyn. Dobie had been dating Eastside classmate Helen Kirby since his sophomore year, and according to Dobie, being able to remain close to Patterson was the main reason he selected LIU. In the summer before he enrolled at LIU, Dobie accepted an offer to play for the Newark Eagles of the Negro National League for the remainder of the 1942 season, and he transferred to Virginia Union University as a result. So Negro Leagues and World War II. Negro League umpire Henry Moore advised Newark Eagles owners Abe and Effa Manley to give Dobie a tryout Hindcliffe Stadium in Patterson, which was successful. Dobie joined the Eagles in 1942 at the age of 17 for $300. The contract stated Dobie would play until September when he would start classes at college to protect his amateur status. He signed using the alias Larry Walker, and local reporters were told he originated from Los Angeles, California. On May 31st, Dobie appeared in his first professional game when the Eagles played against the New York Cubans at Yankee Stadium. In the 26 games where box scores have been found, Dobie's batting average was 391. Dobie recalled a game against catcher Josh Gibson and pitcher Ray Brown of the Homestead Grays. My first time up, Josh said, We're going to find out if you can hit a fastball. I signal. Next time up, Josh said, we're going to find out if you can hit a curveball. I signal. Third time up, Josh said, we're going to find out how you do after you're knocked down. I popped up the first time after they knocked me down. The second time, I sing I singled. Dobie's career in New York in Newark was interrupted for two years for service in the United States Navy. Dobie spent 1943 and part of 1944 at Camp Robert Smalls at the Great Lakes Naval Training School near Chicago. He appeared on an all-black baseball squad and maintained a 342 batting average against teams composed of white players, some of which featured major leaguers. He then went to Treasure Island Naval Base in San Francisco. Bay, California. Before serving in the Pacific Theater of World War II, Dobie spent time at Navy sites in Ogden, Utah, and San Diego, California. He was stationed on the 
old tide in the Pacific Ocean in 1945. Dobie heard of Jackie Robinson's minorly contract deal with the Montreal Royals of the International League from his base on Yoltai listening to Armed Forces Radio. And as a result, Dobie saw real hope in becoming a Major League Baseball player. While in Hawaii, Dobie met fellow Navy man and future teammate Mickey Vernon. Vernon, then with the Washington Senators, was so impressed with Dobie's skills, he wrote to Senators owner Clark Griffin, encouraging Griffin to sign Dobie should the MLB ever allow integration. During this time in the Navy, Dobie was described by his colleagues as quiet. Dobie was discharged from the Navy in January 1946. In the summer of that year, Dobie and Helen Kirby were married. After playing for the San Juan Senators in Puerto Rico, Dobie joined the Eagles in 1946. He made the All-Star roster, batted 360, 4th in the Negro National League, hit five home runs, 5th, and led the NNL in triples, 6th. Manager Biz Mackey led the Eagles, including Dobie, Monty Irvin, and Johnny Davis to the Negro World Series Championship over Satchel Page and the Kansas City Monarchs in seven games to conclude the 1946 season. For the series, Dobie hit 372 with one home run, five RBIs, and three stolen bases. Many in the Negro Leagues believe Dobie or Irvin would be first to break the MLB color barrier, not Robinson. On considering a career in Major League Baseball, Dobie said, I never dreamed that far ahead. Growing up in a segregated society, you couldn't have thought that that was the way it was going to be. There was no bright spot as far as looking at baseball until Mr. Robinson got the opportunity to play in Montreal in 1946. Major League Baseball Career Integration of American League, 1947. Cleveland Indians owner and team president Bill Vick proposed integrating baseball in 1942, which had been informally segregated since the turn of the century, but this was rejected by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Vick had begun the process of finding a young, talented player from the Negro Leagues and told a reporter in Cleveland that he would integrate the Indians roster if he could find a black player with the necessary talent level who could withstand the taunts and pressure of being the first black athlete in the American League. The reporter suggested Dobie, whom Vick had seen at the Great Lakes Naval Training School. Dobie's name was also mentioned when Vick talked with reporters who covered the Negro Leagues. Indians scout Bill Kilfer rated Dobie favorably and perhaps just as important for Vick reported Dobie's off-field behavior was not a concern. The Dodgers rated Dobie their top young Negro League prospect, but unlike the Brooklyn Dodgers' Branch Rickey, who signed Robinson one full season before bringing him to the National League, Vick used a different strategy, letting Dobie remain with the Eagles instead of bringing him through the Indians' farm system. He told the Pittsburgh Courier one afternoon when the team trots out on the field, a Negro player will be out there with it. While Ricky declined to pay for the purchasing rights of Robinson while he played for the Kansas City Monarchs, 
Veek was determined to buy Adobe's contract from the Eagles and had no problems paying purchasing rights. Effa Manning, Manley, business manager for the Eagles, believed her club's close relationship with the New York Yankees might put Doby in a Yankees uniform, but they did not take interest in him. Veek finalized a contract deal for Doby with Manley on July 3rd. Veek paid her a total of 15000 for her second baseman, 10000 for taking him from the Eagles and another five thousand once he was determined. Once it was determined, he would stay with the Indians for at least thirty days. After Manley agreed to Veek's offer, she stated to him, "If Larry Doby were white and a free agent, you'd give him a hundred thousand to sign as a bonus." The press were not told that Doby had been signed by the Indians, as Veek wanted to manage how fans in Cleveland would be introduced to Doby. I moved slowly and carefully, perhaps even timidly, Veek said. The Eagles had a double hitter on July 4th, but Doby, who had a 415 batting average and 14 home runs to that point in the season, only played in the first as Veek sent his assistant and public relations personnel member, Lewis Jones, for Doby. The two took a train from Newark to Chicago where the Indians were scheduled to play the Chicago White Sox the next day. On July 5th, the Indians, with the Indians in Chicago, in the midst of a road trip, Doby made his debut as the second black baseball player after Robinson to play in the majors after establishment of the baseball color line. Veek hired two plainclothes police officers to accompany Doby as he went to Comiskey Park. Player manager Lou Boudreaux initially had a hard time initially had a hard time finding a place in the lineup for Doby, who had played second base and shortstop for most of his career. Boudreaux himself was the regular shortstop while Joe Gordon was the second baseman. That day, Doby met his new teammates for the first time. I walked down that line, stuck out my hand, and very few hands came back in return. Most of the ones that did were cold fish handshakes, along with a look that said, you don't belong here, Doby reminisced years later. Four of Doby's teammates did not shake his hands, and one of those two turned their backs to Doby when he tried to introduce himself. During warm-ups, Doby languished for minutes while his teammates interacted with one another. Not until Joe Gordon asked Doby to play catch with him was Doby given the chance to engage. Gordon befriended Doby and became one of his closest friends on the team. Doby entered the game in the seventh inning as a pinch hitter for relief pitcher Brian Stevens and recorded a strikeout in the 1949 movie the kid from Cleveland, Vic tells the story that Gordon struck out on three swings in his immediate at-bat after Doby to save face for his teammates. However, Doby's second strike was the result of a foul ball. Both the Associated Press and Chicago Tribune stated Doby struck out on five pitches instead of three, and in addition, Gordon was standing on third base during Doby's at-bat. 
from Pride and Prejudice, the biography of Larry Doby. After the game, Doby After the game, Doby quickly showered and dressed without incident in the Cleveland clubhouse. His escort, Lewis Jones, then took him not to the Del Prado Hotel downtown where the Indian players stayed, but to the Black Disabled Hotel in Chicago's predominantly Black Southside near Comiskey Park. The segregated arrangement established a pattern on Doby's first day that he would be compelled to follow in spring training and during the regular season in many cities throughout his playing career. The Indians had a doubleheader against White Sox on Sunday, July 6th, for which 31,566 were in attendance. It was estimated that approximately 30% of the crowd were black. Some congregations of black churches let out early while others walked immediately from Sunday service to Comiskey Park. Boudreaux had Doby pinch hit in the first game before the second listed him as a starter at first base, a position Doby was not expected to fill when the Indians brought him to play at second base. Doby had played the position before with the Eagles, but was without a proper mitt for first base and met much resistance when attempts were made to borrow one from teammates, including first baseman Eddie Robinson whom Boudreaux had asked Doby to replace that day. Doby said only because Gordon asked in the clubhouse to borrow one of the first baseman's mitts did he have one to use in the second game of the double hitter as earlier, di- as earlier direct requests from Doby were rejected. The mitt was loaned by a White Sox player. Boudreaux recounts an incident where Robinson refused the mitt to Doby, but when asked by Indians traveling secretary, Spud Goldstein, Robinson obliged. It was the only game Doby started for the remainder of the season. Doby recorded his first major league hit in four at-bats and had an RBI and a 5-1 Indians win. A columnist wrote in The Plain Dealer on July 8th, Cleveland's man in the street is the right sort of American, as was evidenced right solidly once more by the response to the question, how does the sign of Larry Doby by the Indian strike you? Said the man in the street, can he hit? That's all that counts. Conversely, Doby was criticized from players both active and retired. Noted former players Rogers Hornsby said, after watching Doby play one time in 1947. Bill V did the Negro race no favor when he signed Larry Doby to a Cleveland contract. If Veek wanted to demonstrate that the Negro has no place in Major League Baseball, he could have used no subtler means to establish the point. If he were white, he wouldn't be considered good enough to play with a semi-pro club. He is fast on his feet, but that lets him out. He wasn't. He hasn't. He hasn't any other quality that could possibly recommend him. 
In his rookie year, Doby hit 156, 5 for 32 in 29 games. He played four games at second base and one each at first base and shortstop. Throughout the season, he talked with Robinson via telephone, the two encouraging each other. And Jackie and I agree we shouldn't challenge anybody or cause trouble, or we'd both be out of the big leagues just like that. We figured that if we spoke out, we would ruin things for other black players. After his rookie season, Dobie again pursued time on the basketball court and appeared with the Patterson Crescents of the American Basketball League after signing a contract in January 1948. He was the first black player to join the league. And there is so much more, but time won't allow me to go over all of this. But just from that little bit, I hope that you've learned a lot about African-American players and what they've had to go through to get to where they were at back in that time compared to what they have to go through today. But more importantly, I hope that you find that this history in African-American sports is history that becomes appreciated. For these were the trailblazers, the ones who laid out a path. As you heard, said, one of the sentences right here, it says, throughout the season, he talked with Robinson via telephone, the two encouraging each other because they were all they had, pretty much. Him and Jackie also agreed they shouldn't challenge anybody or cause trouble. They were smart enough to figure that out. Why? Plain and simple. If they did, they would be out of the league. So they had to endure a whole lot so that others would have it a little bit easier today. So people like Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby, let's appreciate what they did, not just with their baseball talents, but what they did as humanitarians in the sport and enduring what they had to endure for the generations to follow. Listen to A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. And after this message, I will be back shortly. So stay tuned. A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor, Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor. Just want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. That's right. Driven by you, the listener who wants to support. So click on that support button down there. You have three options. 99 cents a month. $4.99 $4.99 a month or $9.99 a month will get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Want to enhance your workout? Try the workout bands everyone is talking about. Three different resistance levels. Light, medium, and heavy. Only at www.cakeybums.com Dot com. That's www.cakeybums.com. www.cakeybums.com to enhance your workout. 
with the resistance bands that everyone is talking about. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. So welcome back to my next segment, and we're just going to go ahead and dive right into it. Uh, basically, we are looking at the NFL playoff football and the hot button topic right now, and there's a lot of topics going on right now. The big topic is Kansas City Chiefs centered around one in particular Mahomes, as it is said, Mahomes' clear steps still in protocol. So let's just see what is going on with Patrick Mahomes. Participation protocol for players with this type of injury. And it's important to note that it's not timeline-based, but it's criterion-based. How does the player respond through the five key phases of this return to play protocol. So the first phase is really symptom-based activity. Can you get through daily living activities uh, without any provocation of symptoms? And then you move into exercise, aerobic exercise. So you begin to stress the cardiovascular system and see how the athlete responds. Then you get to football-specific exercise, which might be individual drills, working on strengthening conditioning, agility, that sort of thing. And then you get into non-contact drills. So the player can participate in football activities specific to his position, throwing, for example, for a quarterback, running, but no contact. And then the final phase is return to full contact. And ultimately, if you get through those five phases and the player demonstrates he can do those things without symptom provocation, then is the final clearance. And clearance comes from not only the team head physician, but also the independent neurological consultant who's someone who's not affiliated with the club. Now, Stefania, Chiefs head athletic trainer, Rachel Burkholder, has been in Kansas City for nearly a decade. What can you share with us about his experience helping players back from these type of injuries? Well, Rick certainly has a wealth of experience. He's been an athletic trainer for a long, long time. He's been with Andy Reid since his time with the Eagles. And one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is how much the relationship with the players can factor into this and in a good protective way for them. You know, these guys are so well-tuned to them. They know if something is a little bit off, if the player's not acting like himself. It's really important that the dialogue between the player and the head athletic trainer and ultimately the team physician is very honest and open because that's how these decisions are made. And I should also point out that Rick is a member of the NFL's Head, Neck, and Spine Committee, the committee that develops and revises these protocols. So he knows exactly what to look for. So there you have it. What's going on with Patrick Mahomes, as far as the protocol, and here, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes remains in the NFL's concussion protocol, and it's too early to say that he definitely will play in Sunday's AFC Championship game against the Buffalo Bills, sources told ESPN's Adam Schefter. Mahomes cleared certain steps Monday, some big steps, sources told Schefter, but the reigning Super Bowl MVP still must go through other steps to clear the concussion protocol in the coming days. 
There is hope and optimism considering he is expected to practice Wednesday, a source told Schefter. Players are allowed to practice in a limited fashion while still in the protocol, which includes five steps players need to clear before being removed. Additionally, Mahomes is dealing with a toe injury. However, Coach Andy Reid said Monday that he doesn't think that injury will be a problem. Yeah, I think he'll be okay there for right now with the toe part, Reed said. Reed told reporters Monday, I think we'll be all right. Reed said Monday that the Chiefs would have a plan whether Mahomes or backup Chad Haney starts the quarterback. Bills coach Sean McDermott acknowledged Monday that his team will have to prepare for both quarterbacks. We've got to go. We've got work to do to prepare, McDermott said. Certainly have a lot of respect for Patrick and how he plays the game and what he adds to their offense. But as you saw with the weapons that they have and the system and that and the system that Andy runs, I thought Henning came in and did a well did a really good job and won the game for them there. So we've got a lot of work to do as a team. And also, in this case, on our defense to get ready. So, as you can see, there's a lot of respect from Buffalo towards uh, towards Kansas City. Also, speaking of Buffalo, something that's not in my report here. I happen to have caught this on Twitter. And the fans of Buffalo have an appreciation for Lamar Jackson and what Lamar and his mom is doing for the children with this backpack deal. They've donated, I think it was over $360,000 to their charity fund. So great kudos to the fans of Buffalo and supporting the cause of Lamar Jackson. As a matter of fact, I think when Lamar Jackson got injured in that game, there were some Buffalo fans that were actually hating to see the injury. So kudos to the fans in Buffalo, very class act fans, and that needs to be mentioned as well. Moving on to other news, New Orleans Saints receiver Michael Thomas likely to have multiple surgeries on his ankle. New Orleans Saints receiver Michael Thomas is likely to have surgeries on the torn deltoid and other injured ligaments in his ankle that plagued him all season, the source told ESPN's Adam Schefter on Tuesday. The expectation is that Thomas will be recovered in time for summer OTAs under a normal off-season calendar, the source said. Thomas first suffered the high ankle injury in the final minutes of week one and missed a total of nine games in the regular season. But the source said he knew it was likely Drew Brees' last season and didn't want to miss out on trying to win a Super Bowl with him. Thomas often wouldn't practice all week, yet was still playing games at much less than 100%, and with pain medication, the source said. 
the coaches told him that even even as injured as he was, they were much better off with him than without him. Thomas went on injured reserve from week 15 to 17 to try to get as healthy as he could for the playoffs. He returned with five catches for 73 yards and his first touchdown of the season in the wild card playoff win over the Chicago Bears. However, he has zero catches on four targets in the division around playoff loss to Tampa Bay, including a near touchdown in which his knee was ruled out of bounds. Thomas also missed weeks two through eight after suffering the injury, then being disciplined for one game for a practice altercation that included him punching teammate C.J. Gardner-Johnson and then suffering a hamstring injury during his recovery. He finished the regular season with 40 catches for 438 yards and zero touchdowns in seven games. Just one season after setting the NFL record with 149 catches in 2019. He did, however, have two games with nine catches and more than 100 yards receiving during Taysom Hill's four-game stint at QB while Breeze was sidelined by injuries of his own. Thomas's 510 career receptions are the most by a player in the first five seasons of his NFL career. So there you have some news from the New Orleans Saints camp. So what more can we expect? I want to... really get into this playoff bracket thing here now because here's what we have left Tampa Bay Buccaneers will be at Green Bay on that frozen tundra I heard it's supposed to be like 20 degrees and Aaron Rodgers is salivating over this opportunity to be at home with a few fans in the cold temperature. Then you're looking at Buffalo Bills at the Kansas City Chiefs. Let me just throw this out there. A lot of people I know for sure last year wanted to see Kansas City against Green Bay. This year is no different. There are still some people that want to see Kansas City versus Green Bay. It's the nostalgia. It's the simple fact that We've seen Dallas-Buffalo multiple games. We've seen Dallas-Pittsburgh multiple Super Bowls. But there's an intrigue to Kansas City-Green Bay. I guess the intrigue is the fact that Kansas City and Green Bay were the first Super Bowl. Super Bowl one, Kansas City Chiefs, Green Bay Packers. 
But would you be upset if it was, say, Tampa Bay against Kansas City? Tampa Bay Buffalo. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. So as we go back, January the 15th, 1967, I wasn't born yet. I came along in July the 19th, 1967. That game was played at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. And let's just see if we can somewhat give you a recap of that game. Just over half the seats were filled in Los Angeles Memorial Stadium, roughly 32,000 empty for Super Bowl I, named retroactively to replace the long-winded AFL-NFL World Championship game title. Many complained about the top ticket prices of $12. Excuse me, $12 top price? And people complaining about that? Give me a freaking break it is amazing how much things have changed the first Super Bowl game was played on January 15, 1967 when the National Football League NFL champion Green Bay Packers 13-2 defeated the American Football League AFL champion Kansas City Chiefs 12-2-1 by a score of 35-10 the history of the championship game According to one account, Lamar Hunt, architect of the AFL and owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, came across his daughter's Super Bowl, an ultra-bouncy toy that was popular among kids in the 1960s, and was given the inspiration for the name Super Bowl to represent the championship game between the upstart American Football League and the old guard National Football League. Why not, Lamar Hunt wanted to call our championship game the Super Bowl. NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle thought the name too gimmicky and lacked the weight worthy of his league. He suggested calling it the championship game the Pro Bowl or even the big one before settling on the AFL-NFL World Championship game. Considered too lengthy by considered too lengthy a name by most fans, sports writers, and broadcasters, the game was referred to informally as the Super Bowl. Not until the championship game's third season did Roselle agree to officially refer to the game as the Super Bowl. While host cities are now selected upwards of three years in advance, the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum was not named as the site of the first Super Bowl until six weeks before kickoff. Unlike the hero of the game, the game itself featured an unlikely hero in Green Bay wide receiver Max McGee. 
McGee was a backup and did not receive much playing time. In 14 games the previous season, he had caught only four passes for 91 yards. According to a legendary account, McGee had spent most of his most of the previous night out on town and was in no shape to play football, no less a championship game. McGee knew the only way he would get playing time was if first-string wide receiver Boyd Dowler got hurt. McGee said, I waddled in about 7.30 in the morning and I could barely stand up for the kickoff. On the bench, Paul Horning kept needling me. What would you do if you had to play? And I said, no way. There's no way I could make it. As fate would have it, Dowler was injured early in the game and McGee was suddenly thrust into the game. Just moments after entering the game, he caught a 37-yard one-handed pass from Bart Starr to cap off an 80-yard drive that gave the Packers an early lead and the first recorded Super Bowl touchdown. On the on the day, McGee caught seven passes for 138 yards and two touchdowns as the Packers went on to win the first Super Bowl. Television audience. Television audience for the Super Bowl one is estimated to have been 60 million television viewers on two networks. For comparison, Super Bowl LI in 2017 had just over 111 million watching on one network. Super Bowl one remains the only joint broadcast in Super Bowl history. The reason for two networks broadcasting the game was that CBS held the rights to broadcast NFL games and NBC had the rights to air AFL games. Each network paid $1 million for the rights to televise the first Super Bowl while CBS produced feed of the games. Each network employed its own broadcast crews. The two networks fought for ratings, points, and NBC ultimately emerged with a slightly larger audience. On average, a one-minute television commercial sold for 75000 compared to 2017, where a 30-second ad cost $5 million. Player bonuses. In the first Super Bowl, each player on the Packers received a $15,000 bonus for winning the game, while members of the Chiefs earned 7500 In comparison to 2017, every member of the winning team pocketed 107000 whether the players stepped on the field or not. The losers each received 53000 So my, how have times changed? From 1967 to 2021. So now... Let's get you back up to where we're at. So we're looking at Tampa Bay at Green Bay. That game is Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox. The line is the Packers minus three and a half over under 52. And the line on Buffalo, Kansas City is Chiefs minus three and a half over under 50. Next, the evening game, 6.40 p.m. Eastern on CBS. 
Super Bowl will be played February 7th at Raymond James Stadium. And I'm just curious about this as well, too. How many would like to see a home team actually play in their stadium on Super Bowl? Something to think about, isn't it? Something to think about. But anyway, 2020 NFL playoffs continue to roll through the schedule with the division rounds complete. What's next? Green Bay Packers, the one seed in the NFC, will now host the NFC Championship game on January 24th against the fifth seed Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Buffalo Bills, the number two seed in the AFC, will play the top seed at Kansas City Chiefs. Here is what we know about the AFC and AFC brackets, including seeding, TV times, and the schedule of games from Wild Card Weekend up to the Super Bowl. And, of course, I already gave you that lineup. Let's look at another possible development here. NFL free agency 2021, biggest upcoming player decision for all 32 teams. And of course, what would it be? if we didn't have comments from the notorious loudmouth always got to say something, even if he's not saying something, Stephen A. Smith. Of course, Stephen A. Smith is going to have something to say on this matter. So let's see what he has to say first. So, Stephen A. Smith, take it away. As he talks about, should the Cowboys give Dak what he wants? You're a moron one franchise as far as I'm concerned. All you're doing is stealing headlines. That's what your expert's at. You know what? It's scissor. You got the cheerleaders. You got the billion-dollar playpen known as Jerry World. You obviously got a strong fan base. You're worth about $5 billion, according to Forbes. You are that dude from a business perspective. If you are Jerry Jones and the star in the helmet and the star at midfield, everything but winning football games you seem to be very, very good at as an organization. But when it comes to actually validating your stature as America's team, the bottom line is you're anything but, or maybe you are, because considering the way the state of affairs is existing in America right now, maybe we're mediocre, and that's why we need to get ourselves right rather than imitating somebody else like the Cowboys because, or the Cowboys imitating you because the Cowboys are mediocre. It's just that simple. That's number one. Number two, when you talk about contracts, Max Kellerman, let's take this thing into the proper context, okay? You talk about Carson Wentz, how do you like that contract now? You talk about Jared Goff, how do you like that contract now? Well, you, are, the, are the Saints complaining about Drew Brees' contract? No. Are the Packers complaining about Aaron Rodgers' contract? No. Are uh, the Houston Texans complaining about Deshaun Watson's contract? He 
even though they just finished four and twelve. No, it's Kansas City complaining about Patrick Mahomes' contract. No, just like you can give me guys who haven't lived up to the dollars, I can give you guys who have. And what I'm saying is, who am I going to bet my money on delivering? It's going to be Dak Prescott. Why? Because it's not just about what you're doing on the field. It's the leadership in the locker room, something that was flagrantly absent. Yes, they're the 28th ranked defensive team in the National Football League, giving up over 473 points. I think it's like an average of 29 and a half points a game. They've got the second worst rushing defense in the National Football League. Those are putrid. Certainly, Dak Prescott can't help that for so much. But you know what? He could move the chains. You could be more fluid offensively. You, as a result, could be more productive offensively. That could either put pressure on opposing offenses or keep them off the field. Those things might assist in your run defense and your overall defense as well. Then we get to the leadership in the locker room because wearing that uniform with the star on the helmet, maybe you can encourage CeeDee Lamb not to drop passes. Maybe you can sit up there and remind Michael Gallup, you're on this team as well. You can ball. Maybe Amari Cooper is sitting on the sideline and he's in that game. And inside that line, maybe Ezekiel Elliott is running the football more effectively. He certainly usually did when he was on the field with Dak Prescott. Well, I hate to say this, but it seemed like, I guess, got to give the devil his due. He brought out some valid points there. So, the 2020 NFL playoffs are down to the top four teams heading into the championship weekend. However, that also means that 28 other teams have begun their off-seasons. Ahead of them looms free agency, and the 2021 NFL Draft to help short weaknesses and holes in their rosters. There are several teams that just hired new general managers and head coaches who are eager to get to rebuilding their teams, while others who fell just short in the postseason are asking themselves how they can get over the hump. With that in mind, And with the looming free agent decision each organization has to make, how likely is how likely each is to part ways with the players? Well, there's a lot to get to in that. And what I'm going to do is I am going to. Give you a maybe a little teaser before I close out this segment. Let's start with say the Buffalo Bills offensive tackle Darrell Williams. The addition of Williams this offseason helped the Bills feel comfortable moving second year lineman Cody Ford to guard to start the season. Williams has been a rock in his. Best season since being named second-team All-Pro in 2017. However, John Valencio and Matt Milano arguably taking precedence over Williams among the Bills' free agents. Williams might have played himself into a contract that Buffalo can no longer afford, especially with the salary cap projected to shrink and Josh Allen commanding an even larger deal than previously expected. 
Or how about this? Miami Dolphins. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Dolphins general manager, Chris Greer, publicly committed to Tua Tagovailoa as the 2021 starting quarterback. But head coach Brian Flores was not committal when asked if Fitzpatrick would return as a backup, citing the need for a full roster evaluation. Fitzpatrick, 38, will have a decision on whether to retire, but he played well in his two seasons with the Dolphins, transitioning them from rebuilding to contending. So he likely will be offered a notable free agent contract from another team. If he keeps playing, the expectation is Fitzpatrick will move on to a team that provides him a chance to be a bridge starting quarterback or compete for a starting job. The Dolphins will need to sign and or draft another backup quarterback. And what I will do is I will get back on this tomorrow because there's so much more. But I'm going to leave you with this one. Doing the Patriots, center David Andrews, there are a lot of other notable choices. Quarterback Cam Newton, guard Joe Tooney, and defensive tackle Lawrence Guy among them. But Andrew gets the nod as a four-time captain and heart and soul member of the organization on and off the field. He sets the protection at the line of scrimmage and thus will be a critical extension to whoever is lined up at quarterback, which is another huge question for the Patriots. That's why the odds seem higher. They will work hard to resign him. So that will just about do it for tonight as my time is growing even shorter as in like 15 seconds. So until the next time, take care of yourself and each other. This is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your conductor, Anthony Smith, signing off.